Uh, Father, we come before you and understand that uh, you must really be the one to make your word effective in each of our hearts. Uh, only you can do so. And so by the Holy Spirit, God, would you please do so? Would you show us the glory of your son that uh, he might be everything to us? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text this morning contains the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is one of those famous passages that both people within the church and people outside of the church are familiar with. That as soon as a phrase is heard, the Good Samaritan, many already have an idea of a moving story with themes of compassion and meeting needs and coming to people's aid and sacrificial kindness, generosity, etc., etc. There is a beauty to this Samaritan, especially in contrast to the others who willingly ignore deep and pressing need. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, most people recognize the remarkable goodness of the Samaritan within our verses. And while this is definitely a key passage, a key feature of our passage, the, the context actually suggests something much deeper than mere compassionate philanthropy. This passage is really about eternal life more than it is about caring for those with physical needs alone. And we're alerted to this when we look at the previous set of verses. In verse 21, uh, Luke gives to us a picture of the Son of God rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and praying to the Father. And what this triune God is experiencing joy over is the fact that people are getting saved, that people are actually genuinely believing. And Jesus doesn't thank those who do believe for believing. He doesn't give them a round of applause because they somehow put two and two together and figured out that Jesus says who he says that he is. No, Jesus prays to the Father there. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This prayer shows us that human wisdom and ability contribute nothing to our salvation at all. The reason why any Christian really believes this gospel is because the Father and the Son have revealed it to us. This is not a work that we can accomplish on our own. No matter how much we study or how wise we think we are, we contribute to our salvation nothing. We are like little children in that we receive the fruit of someone else's work with a childlike faith. And Jesus' joy, therefore, is seeing this grace of the triune God in the salvation of people, not according to what they can accomplish, but according to what he accomplishes. This is what serves as a context for this famous parable that the childlike somehow get it, and the ones who think themselves wise often do not. And this parable is given to someone who is exactly that. This is someone who thinks that he's pretty wise and understanding and very capable and who will not come to the realization that salvation has to happen outside of him. The story of the Good Samaritan is given to someone who thinks he is already good and deserving of the kingdom of God. And this passage is meant to uncover that he is actually not, and neither are we. We read in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. 
we see here the question of the topic of ultimate importance, inheriting eternal life. And we see next to it the beautiful and yet impossible demands of the law to achieve it. The question of eternal life and its entrance requirement of a commanded love, one which will inevitably cripple us when we actually come to understand its demands. This lawyer, he's not a courtroom lawyer. This lawyer is an expert of the Mosaic law, which is why he's called a lawyer. He studies the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, with the entirety of his life. And he is asking the most important question that any of us could ever ask. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, entering the kingdom, being saved, getting to go to heaven, this is all related to this question. He's not asking Jesus about how do you do miracles, teach me how to multiply that food. He's not asking Jesus about the stock market or who he should marry or where he should purchase a home. No, his thoughts appear to rise higher. Eternal life is central to his question more than any kind of temporary pleasure. There's great wisdom in this question. There's great perspective in this question. And we should be asking ourselves this very same question with great urgency. Do I have life eternal? Am I inside or am I outside? We ought to be thinking about this perhaps more than we do. And so the lawyer asks the right question, but we also get here insight into his mind and his motives. That while the question appears to be noble, it is instead a test for Jesus. The lawyer wants him to fail this test. He wants to catch Jesus. Jesus, you hang out with prostitutes. You touch lepers. You call tax collectors to follow you. Your crew is made up of a bunch of uneducated fishermen from Galilee. You must disregard the law to do that. Lawyers like us, we don't hang out with a riffraff like you do. You must minimize the word of God to do that, Jesus. I mean, look at your people. And so he wants to catch Jesus in a trap. Now, I don't know if you've ever laid out a mousetrap with cheese on it, and then the next day the cheese is gone and the trap never sprung. And even though you weren't there to witness it, you can just imagine that this mouse calmly eating the cheese right off of it as if the trap isn't even there. Jesus is the author of the law. He is the incarnate word of God. He doesn't go against the scripture. No, Jesus fulfills the scripture. And Jesus' response is not, therefore, well, sometimes you do have to set aside God's word when you really want to help people. Or there are some occasions where we shouldn't be such sticklers to the scripture. Sometimes we do have to disregard the text just a little bit if we really want to love people. He doesn't say, well, I know what the Bible says, but let me give to you my own opinion. Instead, uh, he, he doesn't do that. This is not what Jesus does, nor should that be what Jesus' people ever do. Instead, Jesus presses into the word of God even more. He answers the lawyer's question with a question of his own. What is written in the law? How do you read it? There's this emphasis on the word of God. And this lawyer reads the word of God properly, for he responds with a summation, the thesis, the main idea of the entire law into the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law summed up. These are beautiful commandments, brothers and sisters. You know, the Word of God is not some kind of contractual stipulation that if you do this externally, then you get this reward. Check mark these boxes, and then you get to go in. No, the Word of God 
over and over from Old Testament times into the New has always been about this relational love between humanity and the Lord Almighty. Love is to characterize that. Love with all of our heart, love with all of our soul, love with all of our strength, love with all of our minds. This is what is to define us as those who are God's people. Love, not mere rule following. The greatest commandment and the second one with it is about love. And the love which is being commanded is really altogether beautiful. Let me read you an excerpt from Matthew Henry's commentary. This is written in 1706, I think, and timelessly still speaks to us today. He says, we must love God with all our hearts. We must look upon him as the best of beings, in himself most amiable or lovely, and infinitely perfect and excellent as one whom we lie under the greatest obligations to both in gratitude and interest. We must prize him and value ourselves by our elation or joy to him, must please ourselves in him, and devote ourselves entirely to him. Our love to him must be sincere, hearty, and fervent. It must be a superlative love, a love that is as strong as death, but an intelligent love and such as we can give a good account of the grounds and reasons of. This isn't dumb romantic butterflies in the stomach. We also use our minds. It must be an entire love. He must have our whole souls and must be served with all that is within us. We must love nothing besides him but what we love for him and in subordination to him. I mean, that means even our other loves are for his glory, whether it be for spouse, child, parents, whatever, even those loves are in subordination to the supreme love that the word calls us to, and we love them best when we love him more. There's a beauty to this ultimate command. I mean, can you imagine the church today if we each had a love for the Lord like this? Can you imagine the difference in each of our marriages if we love God like this? More than we loved our spouses. More than we loved our own selves. Can you imagine the difference in each of our families that there are no more competing affections for God? Because we want to raise our children to see the glory of God and the beauty that is within Him rather than the beauty in anything else. Can you imagine if every little child here knows that my purpose in this short life is found that in whatever I do, whether I eat or whether I drink, is to the glory of God? Can you imagine the difference in our community when Yahweh is truly the apple of our eye, which makes us bright light in a world of deep darkness and potent salt in the midst of cultural decay? Can you imagine the beauty of the church when worship is a priority? We have too many volunteers. Everything else comes second. Can you imagine the security that we can each find in him? No more anxiety, no more fear, no more uncertainty when we walk hand in hand with him, when we trust him more than we do status, cash, or power. Can you imagine our love for others when our love for God is supreme? There's an order to these commandments. When we love God rightly, we relate to our neighbor rightly as well. And we can love in ways that we were previously incapable of. You know, I remember uh, a few years into my Christian life realizing this. In college, we had eight guys living in one apartment, sharing the one kitchen, and the dishes would often be stacked high. The stench was thick. The George Foreman grill had grease all over it. Eggshells on the floor, milk in the fridge past due, trash full. And so rather than taking it out, someone opened up a new one, hanged it off the cabinet door, which was also full. It was disgusting. It was disgusting. 
And everyone refused to clean because I didn't do that. He did it. It was someone else's mess, real mature. None of us wanted to give in, and so the mess got compounded with each passing day. And for whatever reason, when one of the roommates was reading his Bible, he'd been struck by how God had been so kind to him, marveling at his grace. And it was immediately after that, not even 15 minutes, that this particular roommate went to wash all the dishes, not because he's a good person, because he's been amazed by God's kindness, feeling the closeness of that relationship that he served a bunch of other people that didn't deserve it. The reason why these two commandments go together is that we can always tell how we're doing with God by how much we're able to love our neighbor or our roommate, our sibling, our in-law, our friends, even our enemies. We can always tell if the Lord has more and more of our all by our ability to love our neighbor. This is always the case, brothers and sisters. And when these commandments are obeyed, it is beautiful. There's no harm, no gossip, no need unmet, no divorces, no fights and bickering, no ex-friendships. There's a beauty to the law of God, which is rooted in a powerful love for him and overflowing love for neighbor that rivals love for even our own selves. And I'm sure that in each of your lives, those of you here who are believers, there have been times, maybe you're in it right now, perhaps the best time of your life when you felt that close to God and so in tune with him that his word was like honey on your lips and your food was to do his will, so much so that the distraction and worldly things just appeared to be so strangely dim compared to the glory of his grace. And there's such joy in those moments and strangely it is in those same moments even against our very own natures that serving someone else is actually better than serving yourself. I'm sure there have been those times and spiritual highs where you have felt in varying degrees this exact way and understand the goodness of the law and its beauty and its wisdom, the supreme obligation of the highest kind of love. This lawyer's answer is spot on. Jesus affirms it when he says so in verse 28, you have answered correctly. But right after that semicolon there is a continuation of the thought, do this and you will live. The tense of the verb there do is a present tense, habitual doing, keep on doing this, keep on obeying these beautiful commands without interruption, and then you will live, and then you will inherit this eternal life. And that is where we feel the crushing weight of the law. It is a beautiful law, no doubt. But when we understand its demands, it cripples us. Because we know in our hearts, we find that there is no way we could ever do what the law requires. Even the best of us, uh, spiritual highs is a phrase because there are fluctuations. The ones closest to God have off days and lulls. Almost every hero of the Bible proves this to be true, that we are all so easily distracted from loving the Almighty and focusing our eyes on something else upon the shiny stuff, upon that reflection in the mirror, the hobbies, the ambitions of the world. We have such fluctuations that we can be so in love with our spouses and then the same week wonder why it is we ever got married, so thankful for the children, and then yelling at them four hours later. So grateful for the job when we first got it, and then two years thin, we think we're too good for it. 
tears in our eyes, the moment of our salvation, and then yawns when we hear the gospel because we've heard it all before. The inconsistency of even the most mature believer sees the repeated alls of the heart and the soul and the strength and the mind to keep our love for God at that level without interruption and then to really, as a result of that love, love our neighbor the same way that we love ourselves. As wonderful a picture the Word of God paints for His people, we come quickly to the realization that the laws of man's are crushing. And if inheriting eternal life were contingent upon our own ability and our own performance, on our own capacity to stay sinless, then we are toast. And this is where the law should have brought this lawyer, the expert of the law. It should have brought him to his knees in confession that this is an impossibly high task for a sinful race of humanity. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I can't do it at all. And so we see here the, the question of ultimate importance, eternal life, and next to it, these wonderful and yet impossible demands to achieve it. But again, for the wise and understanding and not the childlike, the one who really wants to stand on his own two feet and think he is worthy and deserving, the, the head can be really thick. We read in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan to convict a proud, wise understanding, expert of the law, that he is guilty of breaking that very law. Jesus is trying to open up his heart to help him see himself so that he might understand that he needs grace. Right away, we see here this lawyer wanting to justify himself. He's not quick to admit his shortcomings or confess to sin. It seems that he already believes that I do love the Lord with my, all of my all. I mean, I'm religious, I study the Bible, my career is literally the Word of God. And so when trying to justify himself, he doesn't refer to the first commandment because he thinks he got that part checked. But he does go to the second commandment because the religious Jewish people of the first century only washed out for religious Jewish people of the first century. You love your neighbors and hate your enemies. That's why we don't hang out with Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. That's why we don't spend time with Samaritans, those half-breed heretics. We're never going to be seen with prostitutes or tax collectors or lepers or those who are not up to our level. Pride, it always breeds this cliquishness. It loves to perch in an exclusive spot to look down upon other people. 
And so Jesus tells a very vivid story that everyone can understand, and especially so in this day and age. The journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho often did have robbers. You had to stay on high alert. But you take this path up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem to worship God at the temple and then come back. And we have two godly people who literally are on their return trip from worshiping Yahweh. That's the first commandment. Covered. That box is checked. We're coming down from Jerusalem where we just worshiped. And then they each see at two different times the same man. And this man has been taken by multiple robbers. I don't know if you've ever seen someone get jumped before. Maybe a three-on-one or a five-on-one kind of situation. It's brutal. Just the sound of it. It's brutal. And that would be one thing if they held him up, took his money, and ran off. No, these robbers beat him half to death. It's the kind of beating that continues after the guy is already knocked out. And rather than just leave him, they strip him of his clothes. Now, why you got to do that? Clothes are already bloody. Why would you take them? This is the worst of worst. Can you imagine seeing a, a bruised and bleeding body lying on the side of the road, looking like it's dead, until you see those lungs just still barely pumping air? That's what the priest sees, the one whose duty is worship, prayer, and sacrifice, service to God. That's, that's what he sees. Goes on the other side of the road. This is what the Levite sees, which is the ancient Hebrew tribe who attends the temple, the very place of worship. That's what he sees. And then he goes to the other side of the road. What do they have in common? They are religious, and they both believe that they love God, and yet they each and they both have zero compassion on their neighbor. They think they are in obedience to the first great commandment, even when they have zero desire for the second one. And the lawyer listening, he would have done exactly the same thing as those two guys. I'm not going to dirty myself with his blood. I'm not going to defile myself religiously and ceremonially by coming into contact with that. And then we have the Samaritan, and just the word Samaritan would make this lawyer's skin crawl because the Samaritans are the mixed race people. Their ancestors compromise with the Assyrians spiritually. They have their own temple, which isn't biblical. They have their own worship, which isn't according to Yahweh. We reject that, and we reject them. And generations after that, there's this ongoing racial tension, religious tension, that bred a special kind of hatred. It's the kind of tension that gave Jesus' own disciples a quick trigger back in chapter 9 and verse 54. Jesus goes into a Samaritan village. They reject Jesus, and what do his disciples say there? Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. That's a pretty quick trigger. The disciples were literally asking the Savior of the world, should we destroy these Samaritans with fire? That's how tense this is. That that kind of trigger happiness seemed justified, but what does this Samaritan do? He first feels compassion for the stripped half-dead man. He didn't cross to the other side of the road. He doesn't pretend that the suffering doesn't exist. Like we can so often pretend that suffering doesn't exist. He comes to him and has compassion on him. And this compassion is secondly not in sentiment only and thinking noble intentions of what one day perhaps I would like to do for someone like that if I ever had the time or the opportunity to do something good. I love feeling of compassions without action because it just makes me feel so warm inside. No, this compassion is measured in sacrificial action. He binds his wounds, treats them with very costly oil and wine. He could have left them there after that even. And the guy would have woken up and saw the bandages and be like, man, someone really did help me out. 
I wish I could have met that guy. But he didn't stop there. More than that, he puts the man on his own animal, which means that he has to walk the rest of the way because someone else is getting a ride. The Samaritan then spends even more of his own money to bring him to a place where he could get proper care and rest. And notice, this is not a 15-minute kind of thing. This is not even a day-long affair. This is now involving several days of which this man, the Samaritan, doesn't even know is being cared for by someone with compassion. Now, this story is moving because it is so abnormal. The length this good Samaritan goes to. The parable is memorable because of how rare it is that we actually find people who do this and to this degree even one time. But this is the picture the law paints of love for God being expressed in love for neighbor. This kind of love that is defined by loving your neighbor as yourself. This is not actually rocket science. If somehow any of us were to have an out-of-body experience where we get to see and witness ourselves being mugged and beaten and left for dead and we out-of-body come up to ourselves on the side of the road, none of us are walking on the other side. We're going to take great care of ourselves. I don't know if you ever gotten a splinter out. I don't trust nobody with the tweezers but myself. You got to pick coral out of your foot. It's like you can't trust anyone because you can't, they can't feel the pain you're in real time. You want that precision. You try and get in the littlest thing out of your skin. We care for ourselves with a greater care than we pretty much care for anyone else. When we purchase things for ourselves or our families, we have a totally different rubric for what is expensive. When we spend time uh, on what we want to spend time on, we have a different sense of investment than when we do need to serve other people. I spent an hour with them. It was a long time. I spent eight hours at the spa by myself. The parable that Jesus gives is really putting flesh on the commands of God and is making the concept really concrete. It's showing us what true love really looks like. Giving our best as if we are giving it to ourselves is the neighborly love the law demands. And what kind of neighborly love proves that we are actually in obedience to the first commandment of loving God? And what this parable really does is really reveal that humanity is not like this nonstop and every day. Rather than good Samaritan, we see mostly selfishness as the leading quality of humanity. You got more selfies than anything else. That, this, that even when we do serve, oftentimes it's tied to ulterior motives. Now at this point, the question is, are you feeling guilty? And when you see the beauty of the law put into practice in the Good Samaritan, it's easy to feel guilty. And that's entirely the point. The parable is supposed to search our hearts in concrete ways to measure our love for others as an evidence of or a lack thereof of a genuine love for God with all our hearts and souls, minds, and strengths. This is actually one of the purposes of the law. Galatians 3, 19 through 25 argues that the law is actually given to expose sin more than it is to give life. The law condemns us so that we might turn to something else rather than the law to save. We got to turn to someone else to save us. Jesus asked the lawyer here who proved to be the neighbor. The lawyer still hardened. He can't even say the Samaritan. He didn't want that word on his lips. He says, the one who showed him mercy. At this point, again, this man should have felt his inadequacy. He should have understood his own selfishness being exposed. 
but we have no record of this. And therefore, Jesus sends him on his way. You want to live by the law, then you better really obey the law. Two times in our passage, Jesus tells the lawyer to do something in order to inherit eternal life. Why? So that this man and so that we with him can realize we can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It's so that this man would turn away from the law and turn away from thinking that he is a good person saved by his own works because, brothers and sisters, none of us will ever turn to Jesus as the Christ and as Savior and as Lord until we come to an end of ourselves. We cannot cast ourselves on Jesus unless we see the bankruptcy within our own hearts and know, like any little kid can know, I need somebody to catch me. I need somebody to save me. I'm lost. I need Jesus. Dale Ralph Davis, he writes this, this man must first come to total despair over himself. That is where the gospel begins. Not with the good news, but with the bad news. And the good Samaritan is bad news. But there is yet the good news and the best news that ever came from heaven to earth. If there's ever a one who obeyed the law perfectly, sinlessly, without interruption and continuously, it is Jesus. And honestly, we each and we all are like this poor man that needs help. I don't think this is stretching the text at all to admit this that we each and we all are beaten down by a spiritual enemy, stripped and robbed of dignity, wounded and dead in sin, incapable of getting up on our own two feet, unable to make our situation better. And while religion passes us by and does us no good, there is one ultimate neighbor who looks upon us, has compassion on us, not just in sentiment, but binds our wounds and nurses us and treats us as his very own. Jesus doesn't do this with oil and wine, brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't offer his donkey to carry us. No, Jesus sheds his own blood upon the cross to wash away our sin. And he must give his entire body, all of himself, to each of us. He puts our expense into his own account because we have a Savior who loves us us. So we are saved by his death upon the cross, his defeat of death and sin in his resurrection, that by his stripes we may be healed. Jesus is really the only neighbor that has fulfilled the law, and yet he is not only man. He is also the Son of God. And the one who is saved, therefore, understands like a little kid can understand that I'm only saved because someone else did something for me. Someone else had compassion on me. I can't do anything. He has to do everything. I'm only saved because of Jesus. And I got nothing to be proud of. No self-righteousness in this heart. And instead of perching in pride to look down upon other people, I can show a similar love and mercy and compassion on pretty much anybody. This parable is not, you better love somebody so you can get into heaven. This parable is more, you can't get into heaven. Somebody has to take you there in his compassion, kindness, grace, and love. And the more you look at him, the more you can actually love like him. We must, church family, more and more love our neighbor as we do love ourselves. But we can only do that by first loving the Lord with all that we are. Would you please join me in prayer? Now, Father, again and again, we just realize how holy you are 
and how much we come short of that, how perfect you are, and how sinful and selfish we can be. And I pray again by your Holy Spirit that you would make the glory of Jesus Christ shine brightly in our hearts so that our lives might change, that we might be lovers of you and lovers of our neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.